Hi, it's Richard. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Zero to Something. On today's show, I was lucky enough to sit down and talk to Matt Rudd. Matt is a senior writer for the Sunday Times magazine, and he's also authored a new book called Man Down, which looks at the mental health afflictions of men, largely in their 40s and 50s, who, when they get to that age, realise that life didn't turn out exactly as they hoped when they were much younger. And it's something that leads to, I guess you can call it the kind of typical midlife crisis, but a lot of, you know, depression and anxiety and things like that. And so we talk about that a little bit. We talk about why men feel like that. We talk about ways in which raising our children, trying to not feel these pressures is pretty important. And if I'm honest, yes, the book is called Man Down. But I think the areas that it covers are really applicable to both men and women, not just in their 40s and 50s, but earlier on when they're much younger and they're feeling these pressures to be incredibly successful in these jobs and careers in which they might not actually be that interested and then as they get older they're trying to mix and match and combine that professional life with their personal life and they end up kind of miserable so it is not a downer of an episode i promise you that it's really really interesting to talk to matt he's done a ton of research on this and it was great to talk to him so i really hope you like the episode don't forget to subscribe don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. And if you're interested in following me on Twitter, my handle is at underscore R Howard and Matt is at Matt Rudd. Thanks very much. So what's really interesting is because when I reached out to you originally for for coming on the podcast, you you kind of wrote back to me, and this was uh, via Twitter DM, that, you know, I'm not sure if it's going to be, you know, that inspiring because you're kind of at this moment railing against the whole job, life, climbing the ladder thing. And and what's interesting is that that is something that, that I rail against as well. And the people that I'm interested in having on the podcast and interested in talking to are those people who... Are, are doing something a little bit different. And you actually cover it very well in the book, and I've highlighted the quote, so I will, I will read it to you. They're conditioned from an early age to conform, and the more we conform, the more treats we will receive. And so the people that I'm interested in talking to are those you know, entrepreneurs, writers, whomever, who, who don't conform. And that's why I was interested in talking to you. Yes, you have this, you know, nine to five job, but you know, this, this you know, full-time job at the Sunday Times Magazine, but you've also written four books. And... So in, in a way, yes, you've got this kind of standard job, but you've also followed your your passion. There's this, you know, I talk about a voice at the back of your head, you know, whether you have an idea for a novel or, or whether it's this book or, or the book you wrote about English, a field guide, you have this idea and it, it won't let you stop. It, you know, it won't let you rest and, and relax. And, and then you kind of have to get, you know, the words on the page for you or, or build the company if it's an entrepreneur, et cetera. Yeah, that's, I think that's true. I think, I think, when, when I look at entrepreneurs, those people who operate entirely outside the system, yeah. I think that's obviously impressive, you know, to take those risks. But I think for me and a lot of the men that I've spoken to in particular over the last couple of years, that idea of having enough freedom to make a leap like that is just not even something that we can consider. I suppose, And that was perhaps my reticence when I looked at your past guests on the podcast because all I've all I'm really doing is explaining what's wrong I don't I don't think I think one of the big mistakes that a lot of self-help books make is they make some grand claim 
And that yeah. might work if you're you know, just starting out or you're, you know, you, you have freedom. But for, for middle-aged men in particular, it is, if you, if you say, right, live every day like your hair's on fire, chuck it all in and go and follow your dreams. That doesn't even, you know, you, you need to get them from step one to step two first. Yeah. So with for me with the books, I that wasn't it wasn't even a I, this is going to sound so demoralizing, but it wasn't some sort of burning need to write more. A lot of times yeah. I hate writing, but looking at it from a cold-hearted way, it's a book is a lottery ticket. If you know if you manage to write a successful book, it's not really about the money, but it just means that you you have a bit of exposure and you can write more of what you want to write. I don't think I'm really there yet, but this this last book was the first book that I didn't write very early in the morning and at weekends. And that was my yeah. wife's decision, not mine. <laughs> I think if we'd done another book where it was kind of, it had to fit into family life, then that would have been it, to be honest. I would yeah. have a lot of spare time. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, it's really interesting you say that about the writing process. Nobody, and I've, I've interviewed a few authors, none of them has described the actual writing process as enjoyable. It's not. Uh, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of people who aren't writers want to be writers, and I can, I can understand that. But the writers I know want to do something else. It is a classic grass is greener. Once you're actually doing it, this is going to sound spoiled because I'm aware that it's a privilege to be a writer, but yeah. it's much more fun if you're doing it in your spare time as a hobby than it is if you're actually having to meet a deadline. Yeah, I think that's. I think that is true and and really fair. I think it's kind of like exercise, right? It's great having done it and you oh. feel good afterwards, but the actual process of it and the in, in the anticipation of the process of it are are the worst parts. And that leads I to huge amounts of of delay and and provocation and all kinds of things. Yeah, it's it's just like writing. It's a procrastination thing, isn't it? Yeah. I have to say, I think I've I've yo-yoed on fitness all my adult life, and I'm pretty I'm pretty much at the point where I'm gonna get. I did give in a couple of years ago. I just decided that I wasn't going to do anything and just become a lump on the sofa. <laughs> and actually, that that is too extreme. I felt yeah. terrible at the end of it. But the the rewards, all these crazy lycra clad runners go on and on and on about how great they feel i yeah. think it's i think it's diminishing returns it's better to do nothing for six months and then go for a couple of runs and feel remotely good about yourself again so i have mixed feelings about, like i actually I, I really enjoy exercise but if i had like good hand-eye coordination or anything like that you know i play football obviously not right now because of covid and all that but you know i would have joined like a you know, five-a-side team or whatever but i suck at that i played rugby at school and that was because i was you know i was pretty big as a kid and and i could run at people and i enjoyed that and then i tried rugby in my mid-20s and i hurt my neck and i was like three weeks and i was on the sofa and my wife would never let me try it again because like, all you did was moan for three weeks but i i also come from you know my dad was was kind of morbidly obese and you know for my whole life so there's part of me that is driven to not do that and that's why i have his genes in that i will look at a loaf of bread and put on a half a kilo um so i need to do exercise but the procrastination is and i've got three kids as well as you procrastination wow. is definitely a big thing and you know so my wife be like, why are you taking so long to put your socks on just go already get on with it yeah yeah um, i mean i do I, I i do talk about exercise in in the book yes yeah. it's it is a good example of how 
people, men in particular, do go about things and the, the kind of map my run generation, you know, we have, to, yeah. we have to always have a target and a goal. And, and that was one of the few areas where I actually did think I'd work things out. And the answer is not, not to have any apps or things when you're running or mountain biking or whatever it is you do, because this constant measuring of ourselves that we do and then competing with other invisible app users, it's, it, it's not the right reason. And actually we, we have so little time. This, I, this is such a cliche and I suspect you're the wrong person to be saying this. We have so <laughs> little time without, you know, the internet of things around us that it's, it's a, yeah. it should be an escape. And, you know, before we get to woo woo and talking about forest bathing and things like that, when I did chuck out all of the kind of run monitoring, the virtual trainers and all of that stuff I, and started to enjoy the experience then I, I stopped procrastinating. I did put my yeah. socks on a bit quicker because I was actually looking forward to it. Yeah, I think that's a really like fair and interesting point. For me, it's 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 a struggle to find the right exercise that that I can do. So I, you know, I I I caved in the in the lockdown and got a bike, but not like a new bike. I bought it from like Facebook Marketplace. It cost like hundred pounds, and it's terrible. But <laughs> I actually really enjoy a little bit of cycling because so running was a murder for my knees, and so I actually do enjoy the cycling. And I'd put in a podcast, and I just go. I don't measure it. I don't compare it to anybody and i'm very like so i live in edgeware so in the suburbs of london but literally down my road is just farms and horses and stuff and there's just something like really nice about kind of cycling past horses and just seeing them gallop in the field that i particularly enjoy but i i think it is important to keep fitness kind of body as you as you get older i think that helps with mental health as well but yeah. i think finding the right thing and not worrying how you are doing compared to other people which is great which is great advice across your life not just in exercise it's probably the best way to enjoy it well i i spent two uh, another example of not enjoying writing i spent two years writing a fitness column for the sunday yeah. times magazine and it was the editors thought this will be hilarious let's make that guy write the fitness column it wasn't because i was <laughs> kind of uh, joe wick's character it was every week i was trying a different type of fitness so really i should be able to say to you okay so knees bad knees like cycling you should try this but in a hundred weeks of horror i i didn't there was wasn't one thing i fell in love with more than cycling and running yeah. the only thing that was fun was the obstacle racing thing now that is okay. i know that is comparing yourself to other people but yeah. actually no one really cares it's the taking part not the winning yeah. and i don't know if you've tried if you've tried those things obviously we can't at the moment but yeah. it is a lot it's a lot of fun being electrocuted in mud <laughs> that makes um, life good i haven't tried it i have so my my sister and her husband so this was years ago uh they did it a tough mother or whatever it was and i got this phone call from my sister weeping like you're devastated and i was like oh my god i literally i thought my dad had died uh, because she was um, just like she couldn't get her words out but basically her husband barry had broken his leg doing the tough mother right. and she's like so she and so our parents and his parents are in glasgow so we were like closest people she could go and she was just like i don't know what to do da, 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 da. and so like you know so that has not necessarily put me off but it's, it's definitely given me i guess undue caution 
Yeah, this uh, is clearly not, not an advert for obstacle racing. Yeah, not for nice Jewish boys. You know, we, <laughs> we're city people. You know, we shouldn't be running in the mud. Cycling, cycling is about as, as good as we do. But I definitely feel you on the... There is a thing when you get to a certain age and you're like, I, I can't just run and I can't just cycle. I, I must be clad in all the paraphernalia and I must measure it and I must improve. And so before I worked with startups, I worked in, in Canary Wharf, HSBC, on the trading floor and all that. And there were people in their 40s, in their 50s, who would hire out wind tunnels. And I'm sure as the fitness correspondent, you probably met these people or did the same thing. Yeah. They'd hire out wind tunnels to figure out how to shave seconds off the performance. I'm like, dude, you are a fat trader. Who cares how fast you are cycling on your 3,000 pound bike? It who does cares? not matter. That, that is exactly it, I think. And actually, to, to make this suddenly wider and more philosophical, that that who cares thing is... You know, when I started writing about male mental health, the, the, the who cares bit was the hardest for me, you know, because you, you spend your whole time worrying about external validation, worrying yeah. about what other people think, worrying how, where you benchmark against other people. And it's really easy telling people to just stop worrying about all of that stuff. And I, you know, that's, I have talked about that in, in this most recent book. But actually reaching a point where you don't care is hard. It takes it takes a lot of a lot of work. And it and the first few months for me trying it, it, it resulted in panicking. If I didn't, yeah. if I if I stopped worrying, then I immediately thought, oh, I'm gonna get fired, or or the these, you know, my writing's not gonna be any good, or everything will get, you know, this finely balanced life, this precarious existence that I've yeah. I've got to with all the dependence that you and I have and all the rest of it if I stop caring I'll be found out and then it'll all go wrong and you know two years on I I'm still working on it but I literally can go mountain biking on an old bike in some bad Bermuda shorts and not care so I'm getting there yeah, I think, and but it, it's kind of not caring about different things, right? There's internal validation, right? Which is like, I want to write well, for you as a writer, I want to write well because it matters to me that my writing is good. And then there's the external validation is I want to write for other people because I want them to like it. And it's, it's so it's not not caring about anything, or at least in, in my perspective, it's not caring about what other people think about what you're doing. And I don't know if you've read the book Range, it was about kind of how generalists can succeed in a in a specialized world. No, um, I but I shall after this, and I will report back to you. So giving um, me I, homework, giving your work exactly. So it was written by a guy called David Epstein. I had him on the podcast a little while ago, and what we talked about there is kind of the willingness to be misunderstood. And this was with regards to professional. Life. So I went and I, you know, I spoke about this story about when I, so I was the first employee for Uber in the UK back in 2012. And this was before Uber was a thing. And so I had to explain to my parents what I was doing and why I'd gone from banking to this. And, you know, I explained that my parents, avid Coronation Street watchers that they were, and there was a, you know, there was the taxi, the taxi firm of Coronation Street. And they used to, you know, call me Deirdre or whatever, Maureen or whatever the name of the person who was the, like the person on the end of the radio putting the taxis in place. And, and for David, he went from, you know, a, a really good story about uh, one of the top US athletes at Sports Illustrated to basically doing kind of grunt work, at, you know, a, a media startup. And it was always about, you know, we, I guess we were conditioned, not conditioned, I guess we just figured out not to worry 
so much about what other people think but we were also very lucky that it was early in our careers and yeah i mean that is i should mention by the way that for for my magazine i spent a month as a as an uber driver yeah so so i was maureen in coronation street <laughs> so but we don't need to i mean that was a, that was a fun month but <laughs> when you were describing that i was thinking about myself as i often do could i do could i have leapt from for example you know, a bank to a startup now, absolutely no chance. And yeah. so there's two, there's two, there are two aspects to this. There's what you can say to people who, who are in midlife, uh, you're yeah. not, you're, you're approaching it. I'm right in the middle of it. And what, what possibilities there are within the parameters of what's realistic. And yeah. then there's what, what you can say to, to the younger generation in order that they feel like they could make a leap like you did or David did. I, I think you're obviously, that, that's a really exceptional thing to do in both senses of the word, because most people, if they're starting out on a career, they're, they're only thinking, right, I've got to get up the next rung of the ladder I've, I'm gonna. I've got to keep the boss happy. Yeah. I've got to build up my own. You know, my my life. I've got to, at the moment. I'm. A, you know, I'm young. I'm in my twenties. I've got to. If I'm, if I'm fulfilling the fulfilling the traditional patriarchal model, I've got to yeah. meet someone. I've got to have kids, and I, that, that's another fifteen years of your life wiped out. You can see there's very little time. I think yeah. right right from the first minute you'll start, you start. People start handing you gold stars in primary school then exams and all the rest of it. There's very little time to, to actually reflect on, wow, is this really, am I doing this for me or am I doing this for other people? So I'd be interested to know how on earth you made the decision to leap from the sort of traditional hamster yeah. wheel to the crazy one. Did you so, have like 10 million quid in the bank or are you a, <laughs> are you a secret trustafarian? You hate your job. So I was, I was made redundant. It was pure luck. So I, but I, I always felt this way. So I, you know, I worked at a big HSBC building in Canary Wharf. And I don't know if you've ever gone to Canary Wharf, obviously prior to COVID, this was, you know, 2006, 2007, 2008. And so what happens is when you go to Canary Wharf on the tube, so it's the Jubilee line, and it just, it, it collects people. More and more and more and more and more people. And then at Canary Wharf, the doors open and everybody gets out. And it's just this mass of humanity. And you get up the, you know, and you get up the stairs. And you, I, I went to work, particularly the winter, because there's an underground um, mall. And so I could go to work without ever really seeing the light because I'd get on the train. I had to be at my desk at seven o'clock. I get oh. on the train and I get to work and then I come back. And, you know, because it's winter, it's, it, it's dark both ends. And I was just like, I do not want to be like these people. And then so, and, and then so I'd say two things happened. First of all, the, the financial crisis happened when I was working in foreign exchange. And if you've ever looked at, you know, worked on a trading desk or, or seen people that work on a trading desk, foreign exchange is, is unique in that people can work one currency pair for years. So that means they are trading the, the pound to the dollar or the euro dollar or dollar yen or whatever it happens to be. And that's the only thing that they concentrate on for decades. And then that financial crisis hit. And I watched these people with literally no other skills, you know, be be made redundant. I was like, well, look, what is this 40, 50-year-old person who's traded Euro dollar for 15 years going to do? 
And then so I made that decision then, that was 2008, I made that decision that I wanted to go away from foreign exchange because it was pretty shallow. I wanted to go to credit and I'm not going to bore with much, but like credit is, you know, bonds and CDOs and CDS and it's a much deeper market. I wanted to understand that. So I moved to a different part of the bank and then I was made redundant in 2011 and I decided I was I was miserable in that job as well because it's just, it, it wasn't for me and it wasn't what I wanted to do, but I was on, you know, I was on the literal hamster wheel and I know and there's people that I worked with that felt the exact same way and they're still there because they didn't get made redundant. But I, when I was made redundant, I was so happy. I was relieved. I went out for a celebratory burger with my two friends and the only problem I had was telling my wife and I told her that it was, everything was going to be okay. I got a very nice redundancy package, but I knew, I knew, and I said, to myself, I'm not going back into banking. I do not want to do it. And I want to do something more entrepreneurial. My dad was an entrepreneur and, you know, there's some stat, you know, something like 75% of people that are entrepreneurs had a father or a parent that was an entrepreneur. And, and, you know, I felt that burning desire, but I didn't have an idea. I didn't have a network and I wanted to go and do something else. And I use an Uber in New York. And so I got in touch with them. I was like, you guys should be in London and I should work for you. And they were like, okay, cool. You know, interviews and stuff and and obviously if they hadn't wanted to launch in london my little email wouldn't have made a difference but but it did and that and, and that's how i got the job and i and that was the end of 2011 and i've been in startups ever since and i, I work at amazon now but working with startups and, and bringing them onto aws and i've never looked back yeah so that's that is an amazing story but you get less points i'm afraid because of the redundancy <laughs> i i that's fair enough i, I think so I think there's an interesting so there's an interesting discussion about crisis leading to positive change and I think yeah. the the evidence as you'll know suggests that 5 years after a crisis no matter how awful the crisis is for you know for mid 40s the typical crisis is divorce redundancy or losing yeah. a parent some some big crisis Within five years, the vast majority of people say that it was a positive experience. Although it, it wasn't positive in itself, it led to change, it broke the wheel, and then five years on, things were better. So, so the answer there, and in your story, is that if you are miserable, a crisis is a good thing to have. So your redundancy was, was a good thing. But yeah. it's, it would be interesting to know what would have happened if you a if you hadn't been made redundant or b if that email you sent hadn't had a positive response i suspect it would have been you would have said obviously sent more emails and if you really want to do something then it will happen i i i'm really starting to believe that now and i've spoken to a lot of inspiring people who who are quite convincing of the kind of making your own fate argument but it's it is ingrained in us to to not take risks and the more the more you go in into life the the more risk averse you become so it's it's really how you disrupt that because never throughout this whole process that i've been in in the last 2 years have i been in a position where i've thought oh i'm going to go for redundancy yeah i've got a ridiculous mortgage and i've got three kids so what am i going to do so and, and actually, I thought when I started out that I, it, I was, what had I got to complain about? This, and this yeah. is an important thing I would like to briefly talk about. It, a man, a, a white, middle-aged man complaining about being miserable is really not a good look. And it shouldn't be because really we're quite a long way down the queue when it comes to having things we can reasonably complain about. And when I started writing about it, I was expecting a, a real backlash from women in particular, but it, really surprisingly, the opposite has been true. And, and actually, 
the mailbag from the first few pieces I wrote about male mental health were it was just a lot of wives going, this is my husband as well. Yeah. So it's it's really remarkable to me that you can have these all these men that are you know on paper successful they've done they've ticked all the boxes and then when you sit down and have a pint with them it quickly emerges that they don't it's that it's being deprived of that thing that you just described that right i'm going to go and do a startup yeah that it's their lack of sense of freedom that is so such a problem and, and finally on this I, the, the the crisis is I think quite rare. I mean, it's not really there to say that because we have it. We're we're all in in this current crisis, and yeah. a lot of people are experiencing redundancy for the first time. But generally speaking, most people kind of they don't have that sharp shock moment in their lives which forces them into action. Most of us have a decision where we can either start like being more introspective, thinking about what makes us happy and all the risks that might be associated with that i you know when i started out on this i was quite worried that oh if i start thinking about this stuff maybe i'll work out i'm really miserable and then the whole thing will will you know the house of cards will fall down so it's yeah most most men have that option or they can muddle through and and sort of soldier on and that's and that's exactly that's exactly what is the norm because yeah. your 40s there's this big spike in in anxiety and stress for men in particular and then by your 60s that as as one author put it the happiness curve starts going up again and you you've got the sunny uplands to look forward to and that's that's just a really depressing thought for me the idea that most of us trying to just keep our head down and get through that would be like you sticking with canary wharf for 40 yeah. years as you say I suspect most of those people who stayed in their jobs when you left, or most of the people who got wiped out in the in that redundancy round, who only had skills in in one currency, six seven years on, I reckon most of them, if you checked in with them, would have found something else to do and they'll be happier. Yeah, I think it's like a really serious point. I think I I know that I was very lucky, not just in the fact that I was made redundant, but that I was made redundant and that I had a mortgage on a flat, I had no children. So that I was at a point in my life where I could take that kind of risk. Uh, and I could I could make a choice and say explicitly, I am not going back into finance. And this is something that I tell people who are, you know, who are younger, who are just starting out their career all the time. I say to them, because, you know, I'm lucky enough to be a mentor to a few, a few brilliant people. And I say to all, take the risk now. You don't have a mortgage. You don't have children. You have zero dependents. If you, the, the only thing that, that you're going to risk really is opportunity cost. So if you go and work, and it doesn't have to be in a startup, but I'm biased because I, I that's the world I come from. But if you want to go and do, you know, you're in a sales job, but you want to do marketing or you want to go and, you know, crochet something and sell it on Etsy, whatever it happens to be, take that risk right now. Because by the time you are, you know, 36 where I am now and you've got kids in the mortgage, it, it's pretty impossible but it's we're, we're not heading in in that direct we're heading in the opposite direction you know kids today going to sound like an old grandpa now <laughs> but i did speak to you know a lot of a lot of 20 something guys and they're really they because because exam pressure has increased you know more everyone's there's more pressure to go to university there's this intensity now that there wasn't when when i was studying and so you talk to these young guys and they 
they should really, you know, I, I'm thinking, oh, you're so lucky. You've got all that freedom, no kids, your whole life ahead of you. Go for it. They're thinking five to 10 year plan. If I yeah. do this now, they're so sensible and so serious, which is understandable because they've just come out of 15 years of absolutely sort of brutally relentless testing. They've rather than treating the, you know, sort of early 20s as freedom at last. Let's go. What was your example? Crocheting. That's not the yeah. most inspiring thing. You know, <laughs> okay. whatever, no. something. Yeah. They're all thinking, right, five to 10 years. If I get on the, the ladder now, then I'll be able to do this. Obviously, it's not helped by house prices moving even further away from salaries. So, so there is what you're saying is exactly right. But there's one guy I remember in particular who had been looking for a job for a couple of months and was going back to university to get a master's because he was he was worried that he hadn't found a job yet and he didn't want to look like he'd been wasting time. I was yeah. completely shocked when he said it was two months. You know, yeah. what's where's where is what's the point? Because the big realization is at the end of all that, once you've gone through all those hoops, the treat is having this sort of depressive, stressful, anxious 40s waiting for you. So yeah. you're right, but how on earth how on earth do we actually get to that? How do we get to the point where people are, are free? I, I don't know. So your eldest is, is older than my eldest. So my, my kids are one, four, and seven. And your eldest, I think, is 14. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 Too, it's too late for him, as I say, because he's, Sorry, already doing it, he's already doing his GCSEs. And it doesn't matter. And I do make a conscious choice of not saying go on study hard you've got to do yeah. well but it's already there by osmosis he's already stressed he's already stressed about exams and why why wouldn't he be yeah the interesting thing is that this has been a, a very obviously a very dramatically tough year yeah. but i the you know most of most of the book was written before this and it okay. it was in in a many ways suggesting that we need to tear down this whole system which which is, you know, the the sort of the 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 rat race that starts at five and chucks you out in your mid forties, and th- and then suddenly that all did did happen. That did stop in, in obviously horrible circumstances. But the number of kind of I live in a commuter town yeah. or outside a commuter town, the number of kind of the pinstriped. 40-somethings emerging, blinking into the bright sunshine this year has been really amazing. And there's one guy in particular told me, I never, ever, you know, a week before this all happened, I would never have accepted that I could do my job remotely because, you know, there's a real, there's a kind of ego to being, he wasn't a Canary Wharf guy, he was a city guy, but there was an ego. I can't possibly do do my job from home. And two weeks in, he'd he'd emailed his boss saying he was never coming back. And yeah. his boss, he didn't resign, but he his boss was happy for him to work from home with check-in yeah. days. And that's the sort of that's the sort of the it's though thinking about that sort of thing. The, the pandemic has kind of forced us to move forward a couple of decades very quickly, I think. But it's to try and convince young people that actually there is more to life than climbing the ladder. And I know because I've tried it and it's they find it incredibly irritating to tell them that. But it, it is true. But it is true. But I so the reason I was I was asking about your son is because, you know, he's doing his GCSEs, but 
you know, I wonder if it will catch on in his generation or maybe maybe when it is my youngest or whatever. But there are a lot of companies, particularly large companies, Amazon included, that no longer require university degrees to get, you know, good white collar jobs. One of my closest colleagues didn't go to university. And it's more about what have you done? So I would say ultimately there probably will be less pressure on kind of absolute exam results and A's and and A stars and whatever else, but more on maybe, you know, what have you what have you done? Like I haven't just laid on my couch and now I want to work. It's, you know, I've done something interesting or I've done something worthwhile. That will probably, you know, pushy parents and whatnot will probably create its own pressure. Well, exactly. I, I'm just imagining, I, th- I'm, I think, you know, those companies are not hiring people without degrees and nothing else. And the more that becomes common, then you'll yeah. have suddenly we'll have helicopter parents for what will it be? It won't be violin. It'll be how many old people have you helped cross the road in a kind of app format? Oh God, yeah. it's ter- It's terrifying. I think the, I think the, the wider point is what you do so so removing the focus on exams and passing yeah. tests what do you replace it with and i and i think the answer is to to focus more on developing emotional intelligence and kids aren't marked on how how good they are in a community or how good they are in a group they're marked on how well they can remember 3 hours of facts on a particular yeah. day so and actually this week they've just announced what is it a gcse sort of GCSE nature subject what is it natural history where kids will just spend time outdoors and in and in the book I spoke to people who'd set up uh, various forest Forest schools schools. such a great such a great thing and we know it's great we know it's great because quite a lot of schools are pretending they have forest schools so they can stick it on their website so people send their kids there but a real proper a proper forest school where kids just are outside in groups yeah. doing stuff with twigs. That's the sort of what the weird creativity that comes from that is just completely missing from our curriculum at the moment. So I think that all that needs to happen first before companies start, you know, dispensing with degrees as as a requirement. You mentioned it in the book a few times that we're still teaching children in the Victorian method. And do we as parents need to become more willing and more open to experimentation with education and then what that experimentation will ultimately lead to which is some failures not in the children but in the ways that we're trying to educate or trying to make children kind of more complete people rather than just kind of throwing facts at them and telling them to memorize them i just this is something i feel so strongly about and it's as i say it's still it the hardest thing is relaxing about your kids and yeah. trusting that if you provide a you know a safe and stimulating environment for them at home then they will be okay and you know i say all of this stuff and i talk about you know experiences of other parents asking for more maths homework i don't this is not an argument for the kind of medal free sports day you know you do yeah. there is there is fun in competition, but it's certainly, I think, parents to not to do whatever it is that is the opposite of helicopter parenting, to not kind of knock on the teacher's door if they've swerved away from the curriculum because you're worried about their grades. 
but to support that and to to challenge schools where they are clearly teaching to the test and you're missing out other valuable things. And in my experience, actually, most teachers obviously are brilliant. They have this curriculum that they're confined to, but they do an amazing job in doing what what the curriculum should do in providing, you know, trying to move education on from the Victorian days. Yeah. Yeah. Are your, so are your sons, and again, your eldest in particular, is he better at showing his emotions and kind of being in touch with his feelings than, you know, the men, you know, yourself included that you describe in the book? I, I, if you'd asked me that when he was 13, not 14, I would have given you a really confident, cocky answer about what yeah. an open and an emotionally mature family we are but he's now 15 and is <laughs> is becoming monosyllabic which is important yeah. but we have we've we've had some very open conversations about things that I would never ever have discussed with my dad and the interesting thing is I thought it would all be hugely embarrassing you know doing doing a version of birds and bees for example but actually the kids today I think that it's we're in a transition period they they are now that you know they're, they're one generation further away from the Victorians so you know by osmosis and by some teaching at school it's less of a kind of hugely embarrassing taboo and more something yeah. they can actually be quite responsible for the reason I talked about that in a, in a link to why we all end up miserable in midlife it's all about being able to be open and not embarrassed about that stuff is a big is a bigger part of just being open and thinking about what makes you happy so you know if you're constantly suppressing things if you're constantly focused on the future and passing goals then you will end up as a as a kind of knackered 40 something and you've got to tweak all of that stuff really on in order to avoid it so it's not it's too late for my son but you'll you'll be fine. It's, inter- it's interesting because the difference between boys and girls are is interesting because I I don't have any daughters but I do have nieces and there are just definite differences in temperament and and other things from an from a, like a, a really early age and you try and think or try and hope that you know you're not influencing them as a parent and telling them to be you know more macho or anything like that but you know my eldest son Zach he from Basically, the day he was born, just loved trains. Just like as an example, right? Just I could not get enough trains. Not like I couldn't care less about trains. My wife couldn't care less about trains. We never, you know, we never like pushed him towards that as a as a thing. You know, he his YouTube of choice when he was younger was you just watch like videos of the Jubilee Line going past and going on just going on a train, not going anywhere was his like day. And I remember talking to somebody who didn't have kids when that was maybe three. And she was like, Oh, that's because you kind of like forced him into this like gender role. And I was like, No. I couldn't care that like, he wants to play with dogs. He can play with dogs. He just chose trains, and and so you know there there is something to the difference. And I, so I I wonder kind of what you were talking about there. How much of the I guess almost like emotional damage that we put on ourselves and and kind of passed into our kids is part of our Englishness, and then ultimately we kind of pass over to the US and their puritanism. How much of it is is cultural in that sense? Do you think? I would I would never understate it, it takes the smallest smallest thing to when 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 kids are in that formative age you know naught to four the tiniest inherited thing can become all-consuming you know I don't know how you explain Zach and trains but there would have been something 
something there, something passed on that 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 made him obsessed with trains. I think I think that so the whole point about girls and boys it is dangerous to make huge gender generalizations, sure. but girls do tend to be better behaved by the time they reach primary school and since being behaved is one of the kind of main requirements of being at school that means they tend to fare better in a classroom environment yeah and i and as one of the people i interviewed in the book very rightly pointed out we should be we should wonder why that is just on its own why why what is it are we conditioning girls even before you know when they're very very little to be well behaved and i think hopefully as we move to a, gradually to a more more equal society that that might change as for boys i think it's very very difficult not to instill those kind of old patriarchal values and that for example a while ago my youngest tripped over and fell and slightly scuffed his knee and he was crying and he was just kind of having you know spent two years writing a book about the problem with make bringing up boys being you know having too many too much masculine attributes he spent yeah. two years I still found myself you know feeling a little bit embarrassed on his behalf and if I'm really honest mine you know stop crying in front of the other parents you're all right it's only a it's only a yeah. scratch I mean obviously if, if he'd pulled his leg off I would have I would have been, it would have been fine, but a little scuff. And I was, and that was such a ridiculous reaction from me, but it is, yeah. it's ingrained. It really is. And it, and it, the, the encouraging thing is it takes, it does take work, but you can actually cut a lot of that out if you think about it. And I, and I think that this idea that, you know, people are worried that we, you know, we've gone, we've, we've become too, you know, the whole gender neutral thing's gone too far and it's all silly and boys will be boy. There is no risk if you, if you are trying to bring up your kids in a, in a, let's say modern way, a non-patriarchal way that, yeah. that you'll be doing them any damage at all. I think it's, it, parenting is such a, yeah, it's, it's an almost impossible endeavor and all you ever try and do is the right thing for your kids and you never know if you're doing the right thing and it's you know it's a constant for lack of a better term mindfuck because yeah. there is reams of different types of advice and then you have other parents and what they say you should do and then you have you know parents and parents-in-law and all that stuff and there's just you just you know you try and raise your kids the best they can so that they can they can become good people and and kind of to your point of of you know your eldest who's who's already worried about his GCSEs you know I wonder how much of that comes from societal pressure and then kind of peer pressure as well right which is like he sees his friends studying and he's you know there is there is an innate competitiveness in all of us and maybe he just he wants to beat his friends and you never know like yeah. how much of it's nature versus nurturing and all this stuff it's just a it's an almost impossible task i don't know why every generation keeps doing it when we were doing it it was the full gina ford thing was very popular and i mean yeah. we definitely don't want to get into all that now but we we did quite the you know we were doing the full co-sleeping thing people thought we were mad a lot of people thought we would we would suffocate our children and all of that so so there's there is if you do things differently you do get societal pressure 
but I would, I mean, I'm certainly no expert on parenting, but I think if you just focus on surrounding them with love and support, yeah. that's the best you can do. And you're absolutely right. doesn't matter how much we talk about this. Once they, once they end up taking their cues from their peers, you, your, your role is suddenly diminished. And to depress you further, Richard, <laughs> you, you might feel like you've just, you're just getting through the hard years now with your three young yeah. sons. Just you wait. Do you think the kind of pandemic-induced remote working? Because a lot, a, a lot of the stuff in the book, and um, you talk about the misery of commutes um, and people having, you know, a miserable three-hour commute or two-hour commute or, or or whatever it happens to be. Do you think that that the kind of the the shift to remote working will have a positive impact on people because they will get rid of those commutes, or it will have a relatively negative impact because then you kind of blur the lines between home and work, and you're kind of always at work. Yeah, well, I, as I said, I, I, I do, you know, commuting was is quite a large section of a chapter in the book, and it, and I wrote most of the book before this year, and then suddenly, suddenly, I, I found myself working from home and homeschooling at the same time. It was like all the dreams have been answered. Let's pulp this book. It's all fixed, and within about three weeks, I was, I'd had enough get me back to the office, bring back the patriarchy. And my wife was working, she works for the NHS. So she was, she was off, we were clapping her off every day. And I, and I was, you know, it was a complete role reversal very suddenly. So I think that the, the answer is clearly, you know, the, the, the dream is work life balance. And if you have, if you are working from home, that does become easier. The, the actual, I think the end answer is, and the one that we're certainly larger companies are fumbling towards now is that we really don't need to be in the office five days a week. We Perhaps we need to be in sometimes, yeah. but it's okay to have at least flexible working. And before this year, it was absolutely the case that the, the onus to make some concession to life rather than work fell on women it was it would it was more likely to be women who would say to their employer i need to work part time for the next year or can i leave home can i leave work at four o'clock on fridays or even i've I, i'm not going to be in this afternoon it's sports day and it was the men who was who were not asking who were missing sports day who were missing you know meal times and all the rest of it we was it was i mean again sweeping generalizations here but that was yeah. that was very much the case what's happened with this year is that it's become clear in zoom calls and in conversations we've had kids in the background pets in the background messy life in the background it has been impossible for men to kind of preserve this i'm a provider and i'm at work egotistical model we've had to show our employers that we have lives and that's and that has been a really joyful thing actually i have I have spoken to so many men who it's just almost a huge sense of a relief because now we you know now now our our employers know it will never go back to how it was and and again in the, in the book i i did dwell quite extensively on paternity leave which is this is the, the most frustrating thing about this whole whole thing is the idea that we still have two weeks paternity leave 
and then you're back. I just, before the pandemic, I I would have said it's going to take another 20 years. There are companies that are now offering equal parenting leave. And those companies that do, they have employees who start family life with, you know, both parents off, father able to support mother who is supporting their child and then returning to work renewed and refreshed rather than literally tucking, you know, scrubs into their bag as they go. It's It's such a ridiculous thing. It's so obviously beneficial to give families a decent start. You know, it would wipe out all the need for all the other stuff that governments end up spending money on later in life. So I think that the, the, this is a very long answer, but the, the coronavirus has changed the way men behave at work. And, and I hope that that will make what happens next, you know, to, for us to move much more quickly to a, a sort of work-life balance that actually works will happen much quicker. Well, you, you did ask whether now we're all working from home, it, it, even, it creates this blurred boundary even more. I, I think that's absolutely, absolutely true. The whole self-help industry is full of people, quite a lot of CEOs actually going, oh, I turn my phone off at seven o'clock every easy. I've always found that quite frustrating because of course the CEO can turn their phone off at seven o'clock. But I think now we're there's this work, it's suddenly everyone's, maybe it's just me, but because we're working through a pandemic, it feels like there's a slightly more forgiving office business culture, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And so we do need to have, we do need to implement, like we need do need to protect ourselves from constantly being at work at home. Yeah, I think it's something we like. We need to do better of it. To be fair, even before the working from home, you know, if you had email on your phone, you would check it when you're like, or very, most people would check it when they were at home and it kind of creates that that blurred line anyway. So one of the things that that I've been better at as as I got older, I think, and particularly being at Amazon. So one of those is, I hope, self-awareness. And then the second thing is kind of intentionality. So Amazon has this process whereby if you want to get anything done, really, you want to just like create a new product, start a new division, whatever, you need to write something called a narrative. And those narratives are a maximum of six pages long, and they'll have like a lot of data in them, and, and, and they're very kind of dense, but that's how you get things done. And, and at the beginning of each year, each kind of employee will write a narrative of what they're going to do over the next year. And so one of the things that I started to do a couple of years ago was write a personal narrative. These are the things that I want to achieve in the next year, whether it's you know personally or professionally, and this is how I'm going to do it. And I'm going to look back on this and and, and kind of see if I've achieved my goals and and stuff. So it, it requires you know self awareness in terms of what I think is going to make me happy over the next year, and then kind of the intentionality to actually write it down and be wow. explicit about what I'm going to do and how I'm going to achieve it and not to turn this into like a Richard Howard self-help promotion line but I think that is has I've found really really beneficial in kind of achieving personal goals and and I wonder if you're talk, reading your book and, and kind of listening and, and kind of reading about these men in their mid-40s who kind of got to this place and they're like you know, miserable, whether they kind of lack a little bit of self-awareness over what will ultimately make them happy and then intentionality of kind of how to how to go about it. Yeah, I mean, that's impressive. I, I think the skill in doing that or the risk is that you write loads of things down 
that either you are going to be disappointed about when you don't achieve them or you're writing a cheat list that you're writing things down you know you're going to achieve so you're really just doing it to make yourself feel good about yourself i don't i've i've this is the bit where i this right back to the very beginning of this where i said i wasn't sure if i'd be any any use on this podcast i'm i'm suspicious of of lists i went through a big phase of writing lists yeah. and then and certainly goal lists were really unhelpful for me because i was never honest enough when i did them yeah. so, First, so, i think is a, is a, a much more interesting yeah. concept you're going to go on sorry so what i've done to it is like like number one it works for me and and yeah. it doesn't work for everybody and that's great but what i say is it's, it's explicitly not a list it's an essay so it is wow. not okay. these are the these are the things that i want to achieve you know i want to lose weight and i want to you know earn a million pounds and i want to do that because that like they, those lists you can do, it, it is i am going to do x and this is how I'm going to do X, and this is why I want to do X, and this is what I expect to achieve, and these are the risks and dependencies that I have with achieving X. And then what I would say, which I didn't mention, is that it is then peer-reviewed. So I sent it to my friends who also work at Amazon, and I said, have a look at this. Tell me if you think this is right, if this makes sense, and if you think I'm just being like a, an idiot. Because lists are just easy to, to, to jot down and go, I will lose weight and I will earn more money and I will you know, have a nice, or whatever it happens to be. Whereas if you write an essay, because that's what a narrative is, it is an essay that says, this is what I am going to try and do. This is how I'm going to try and do it. And these are why it might fail. And these are the risks and, and, and things like that. And this I, is what I expect to achieve. Yeah, I think, I think that sounds, I think that sounds absolutely brilliant. Uh, for the whole reason that I started you know talking about mental health and and moving moving through and and not just soldiering on was that I started having conversations with with peers with friends but then also just men of men of a similar age I wasn't writing it down but actually by discussing how I was feeling and what, what you know where my life was heading and then hearing men talk back it sounds like a kind of less less formalized version of what you did and it's amazing actually how sharing your own you know snapshots of your life with other men is is beneficial because because if you don't formalize that conversation it's as soon as someone starts talking about anything deep or personal the there is a there's a strong urge to make light of it to have fun descender to descend into banter and yeah so I think I think it takes quite a lot of guts to show, in your case, a personal narrative, or in mine, you know, how I'm really feeling, man, to yeah. to other people. But the surprising thing is that actually, once you've once you've established that this is a serious thing, it's incredible how how you find commonality and also really really good advice from from other men. Yeah. I, I think that that is great and that's true. And I think one of the things that, I don't know if this is just men, but people in general do, is they don't tell people about the thing that they really want or the thing that they really want to achieve. Because um, they're a little bit embarrassed, a little bit shy. Often it will be something creative. You know, they might be in a in a you know banking job or a whatever kind of job and they want to do something creative, whether it's write a novel or, or whatever. And they're a bit shy and embarrassed about telling people that that's really, really what they want to do. But the second that you let that out, people are trying to help you. That is something that I found and also allows you to kind of own it a little bit more and, you know, be a bit a, a bit accountable. Yeah. Well, I, I don't have anything to add to that. that that's, I think that's absolutely true. The, 
the whole point it it's the it's that first step step one that is yeah. you know i've made it really clear that i've not written a self-help book but for me it's like step one is 90 percent of it after after you've got going after you've in my case admitted that you know you're that all is not as well as it seems or in in other people's case that you know you need to you need a change of direction in life or you want to pursue this ambition whatever it is yeah it's that first step that is 90 percent of it and it just so happens that for male mental health, that first step, i.e., talking about it, is really hard. No, absolutely. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the the final kind of three quick fire questions because I, I realize I've kept you for a long yeah. time. Okay, so let's do this super quick then. So uh, podcasts always end with a recommendation, you know, book, TV show, whatever. I'm interested in anti recommendation, things that people should <laughs> avoid because it's not worth their time. God, I just almost instinctively said my book, but that would be really <laughs> unforgiving of the publisher. I, I would I would avoid I would let well we've been talking about it a lot. Let me start that again. I would avoid self-help books because yeah. there is it's it's all promise and if you're not in the right place to start with, it's just gonna make you feel worse than before you bought it. Absolutely. Is there a big thing, you know, relatively big thing on which you've changed your mind recently? Oh my goodness. There is an amazing one. It's it would be such a perfect answer if I can't if I could only remember it. Oh well, I, I mean, I suppose my whole life has changed because I've because I've changed my mind about worrying about stuff. I know again yeah. we've been talking about that, but I have gone from being someone who is fearful to someone who is only eighty percent fearful, <laughs> which is progress. Yeah, I literally I don't care anymore. I mean, I'm yeah. resigned. Whatever, whatever happens, happens. There you go. A holistic answer or a positive one? It's a positive one. I think I think as long as you don't take it to its ultimate conclusion of not caring about anything ever, and (laughs) how you appear to people that you don't really care about ultimately is is super important and is is why I go out uh, on the weekends in joggers and t-shirts from uh, old employers and my wife is devastated. And the final one, it's it's been it's been great to talk to you. It's really interesting hearing kind of uh, your journey and then also talking talking through the book. Who else would you like to hear on a podcast like this? Oh, that's a good one. I I would say, so a guy who's been really inspiring and I've checked in with him a few times over the last few years is a guy called Paolo Gallo, who used to work for the World Health Organization, a really big cheese, and then yep. chucked it all in. To, and wrote a book um, that was first published in Italy, talking about all this sort of stuff. And he's he's really inspirational. So if you get him on, I'll listen to that podcast. Okay, perfect. As, as I've what, listened oh, to all the others, of course. It's lovely. Matt Rudd, the book is Man Down. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much. It's been really great. Awesome.